Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. That's fantastic. Well, so... Uh, whether you've made plans to stick around after the service or not, uh, I encourage you to just consider um, hanging out and hearing from Natasha some more and having a free lunch that might end up costing you a little bit of money in the long run. So uh, stick around. I think that's, uh, that's going to be a good, good time. Well, today's a good day, isn't it? My goodness. Wow. Well, and not just because we're kind of getting some warmer weather again, right? Which I always think is fantastic when we get this extra little spell of warm weather. I'm excited about that. But because God is on his throne, and he continues to be on his throne, he continues to be in charge, and we can worship him. So I hope you're well today. Uh, I have a question for you. How is your mental health? <laughs> I heard some laughing. That's, that's, there's an answer right there. There's an answer right there. Um, mental health awareness has been something uh, very important for us to engage with in this last season. Uh, you, you may not know this, uh, but Pastor Nate has been regularly speaking to the youth over this last year about mental health and ways they can look after their own mental health. We're in a season right now of, an in, of intense mental weariness right now. Intense mental weariness. These last three years have taxed people's mental health in ways that I think we'll, we'll, we, we will be yet to see. There will be a lot of stuff that comes out of this time in the years to come as we see how taxed people have been in this time. One of the problems we face in a season like this is the continued level of stress and uncertainty which results in people being mentally fatigued. You likely know this already, but God has invented, uh, has created our brains to be magnificent instruments, amazing, amazing instruments. One aspect of the brain that is particularly interesting in this time um, is the, the fight or flight stress response of the brain. And perhaps the best way to understand what I'm about to talk about is to share with you the image of the old circle the wagons illustration. Back in the early pioneer days, people used to travel the countryside in horse-drawn uh, wagons. They would hire a wagon master who earned his living by leading several of these wagon trains across uh, the prairies in search of new-to-them places to live and explore. And while on these trips, if there was danger about, if they spotted danger in the distance, the wagon master would signal the group to circle the wagons, which meant they would literally circle the wagons up. They'd put all the vulnerable people in the inside, and all the, usually all the men would stand around the edge with their guns pointed outwards, defending their group from anything and everything that was to come. This was a great strategy to provide all around 360-degree protection when there was danger. But as time wore on, some of these veteran wagon masters, who had been through quite a few battles, uh, going again and again and again to circle the wagons, fending off enemies, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes by the skin of their teeth, sometimes 
um, with the loss of people and property. These wagon masters did this again and again and again over lengthy periods of time, and they began to become weary. They began to become fatigued. So much so that while leading groups across the prairie, some of these wagon masters would circle the wagons at the first hint of danger, sometimes when there wasn't even any danger around. Uh, these wagon masters had become so traumatized by the events they had walked through that at every sound, every sight, every smell, they would circle the wagons seemingly for no reason whatsoever, eventually leading to their complete inability to take any wagon trains across the prairies at all. This illustrates our brain's fight-or-flight response in overdrive. You see, our, our brain has been designed to protect us, to, to, to protect us from dangers, to protect us from the things in this world that would come against us. When danger comes, our brain responds by flooding our body with chemicals that make us react quickly to dangerous situations. Our brain circles the wagons, points the guns outwards, and protects us so that we can survive. And this response has saved us on many occasions. You can imagine if you're walking through the, the woods and a bear jumps out at you, you're not going to take the time to calculate I wonder what I should do in this situation. I wonder if I should run or not. Because by the time you've had that thought, already you're done. But the brain responds in a, minute's, in, a, in a moment's notice, and you run, or you fight, or you do whatever is needed in the situation. However, an interesting thing begins to happen in our brain. Our brain, like those veteran wagon masters, uh, begins to fall into a rut of trying to protect us from even things that are not dangerous. When we go into a season of lengthy stress, where our brain begins to anticipate danger where it doesn't exist. It happens particularly where a repeated stress has happened or a traumatic event has taken place, similar to what we've walked through in these last few years. Our brains, in order to protect us, overreact to situations where there is no danger. Now, this is sometimes referred to as post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, but it can also not be as significant as, as that. It could just be a significant traumatic stress response. And interestingly, interestingly enough, one of the surest signs of this kind of overreaction of the brain is divisiveness and reclusive behavior. The best way that brain knows to protect us is to circle the wagons, to isolate us, to, to convince us to stay close to home, uh, to convince us that maybe friends and family aren't even all that safe, to convince us to make our circles smaller and smaller and smaller until we're all alone in our own little wagon circle hiding from everything around us. Now, when we see this kind of behavior, we recognize that's unhealthy. When we see our friends shutting down, when we see our family members uh, cutting us off and hiding by themselves, we recognize that as unhealthy. But at other times, this circling of the wagons looks like us finding other like-minded people who agree with us, and, and we circle up the wagons together with them. We, we together point our guns outwards towards every other group around us, and we shoot anything and everything that is different than us. 
And sometimes we don't see this as unhealthy behavior. It feels like protection. It feels right. It feels like the whole world has gone crazy. And only these few that we are with, are we are the only sane ones left. And we're just doing what we need to survive. We don't always see this as unhealthy in the beginning. But this divisive behavior of circling the wagons eventually leads to destruction. And this is exactly what I think that we're seeing in the book of 1 Corinthians, which we're about to go into for the next couple months. And I think our study of this book of 1 Corinthians is timely with what we're seeing in our culture today. So we're going to dive right into the hot mess of 1 Corinthians today, and we're going to do so for uh, the next several weeks. So I encourage you to read along with us. Today we're doing 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4. And if you didn't get a chance to read them this last week, read them in, the, in, in these next days uh, to get a bigger, big, bigger picture of what's going on. Next week, I think we're going through uh, chapters 5 and 6. Uh, so look on our website, uh, get onto our community group, and you'll find out what we're reading for the week. But join us as we begin to delve into the hot mess of 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written to the brand new church in Corinth. In the first four chapters, which we're looking at today, we see massive division. And this is most likely the main reason that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. Here's what Paul says. Right away, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, this is what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So you see in this little introduction here exactly what's happening in the Corinthian church. The church in Corinth has circled their wagons into like-minded groups and has turned their guns about er against everyone else outside of that group, even other members of the same church. Some within the church are team Paul. Some are team Apollo. Some are team Cephas, which was uh, Peter's name. And some holy rollers are team Christ. And they're fighting amongst themselves. Now, as we look at this, what's led to this division? What's going on here? Well, we can't be 100% sure, but we do know the history. So here's the background that we know. The church in Corinth began a little shakily. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. It tells the whole story of when Paul comes to the church in Corinth and plants the church there. So you can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Basically, in that chapter, we see Paul coming to Corinth and beginning his preaching in the synagogue, which is what uh, Paul did regularly, regularly when he went into new towns. He would go and he'd preach to the Jewish people first in the synagogue. Well, it seems like when Paul preached there, he gained no traction. No one in the synagogue wanted to turn their lives over to Christ. And so Paul quickly moved on to the Gentiles. And as he spoke to the Gentiles, now remember, the Gentiles are anybody and everybody who's not Jewish. So these are Greeks and Romans and all kinds of people. When Paul speaks to these Gentiles, there's overwhelming acceptance of the gospel. 
The Gentiles come to Christ in droves. It's wonderful. Now, Corinth was a very wealthy city, but it was also very sketchy. Even for the Roman world, which was known to be morally corrupt, Corinth stood out as a cut below the rest. They were one of the worst, most sketchy places you could go to in this area. So Paul plants a little church in Corinth, made up mostly of Gentiles who were just learning about Jesus for the very first time. They had no background in understanding who the God of the universe was. They're coming at this cold for the very first time. And in this early season, the Jewish people who Paul had preached to already, who had rejected the message, as they see the message of Christ well up within the Gentiles, these Jewish people tried to rile up the Roman government against Paul. They tried to take him to court. They tried to tell the Roman government to, to do something about this brand new church. Nothing really came of it at the time, but you could see that the whole town was riled up. Now, after Paul leaves Corinth, Apollos, okay, that was one of the team Apollos. Apollos comes by Corinth. He's a passionate evangelist, and he has the most, uh, he has the best chances, as we read about Apollos in Scripture, we see that he mainly reaches out to the Jewish people, and he convinces many Jews to follow Christ. So we can assume when Apollos comes to Corinth, he turns quite a few of the Jewish people to Christ. They didn't listen to Paul, but here they're listening to Apollos. So here we have a brand new church made up of brand new to God Gentiles and some possibly hot-headed Jews living in the Las Vegas of the Roman world who are already on the naughty list with the Roman government. That's not a really great start, right? You can see where there may be some stressful spaces here right from the very start. Now, at some point after Paul planted this church, he wrote them a letter. So this was normal for Paul. He spent about a year and a half in Corinth um, teaching them and preaching to them and helping to plant this new church. But then he leaves. And at some point after he's left, he writes a letter back to him to try to encourage them to continue to move forward in what they were doing. But he had heard some reports from them. And we actually don't have that letter that Paul wrote to them to begin with. But he talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he just mentions briefly that the previous letter that he had written to them was to encourage them to be careful to not associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, so he sends this letter to him, And he explains that he's actually talking about people within the church. So we can see that the Corinthian church right from the very beginning, is already having some real difficulty with separating themselves from the culture around them. Not disassociating with the people, but in themselves, stopping the behaviors that they had once done as people, that, as pagans who didn't know who God was. So these Corinthian members of the church were struggling in themselves with sexual morality, and Paul was encouraging them to be careful and to work on this. So it makes sense in this space in Corinth that there is going to be much difficulty in planting a new church, much difficulty in moving forward, much difficulty in leaving behind old lifestyles. So Paul writes this first letter uh, to, uh, to encourage them to stay away from the sketchy stuff. And it seems like as Paul wrote that letter, it stirred up something within the church because they write a letter back to Paul. 
And in their letter back to Paul, they have a bunch of questions about what it looks like to live this Christian life. And they ask questions about marriage. What does marriage look like? They ask questions about food sacrifice to idols. They ask questions about spiritual gifts and, and the resurrection and likely a few other things as well. They were, after all, a brand new church trying to figure out how to be a church, living in a hostile environment with both internal and external threats, incorporating two majorly different factions of people, Jews and Gentiles, and all of this happening from the very start of their brand new church. There was lengthy, ongoing stress for this brand new church in Corinth. And from what we read here, they were not handling that stress really well. So it makes complete sense that this church would be experiencing traumatic stress responses. So back to what's happening. Paul spends some time planting the church. Paul writes them a church to warn them, uh, writes them a letter to warn them. They write Paul a letter back asking Paul a whole bunch of questions. And Paul gets this letter and he's like, okay, it's time for me to write them another letter. It's also around this time that Paul hears a report that there are quarrels happening amongst the believers. They've started to circle the wagons within the church. So now we come to the letter that we have, the letter of 1 Corinthians. So this letter that we have is a response back to the Corinthian church from their letter that's asking about marriages, um, all the different food sacrifice to idols, uh, spiritual gifts, the resurrection. This is, 1 Corinthians is a response to the church about those questions. But first and foremost, it's a response from Paul after hearing these bad things about the church beginning to circle the wagons and quarreling amongst themselves. And so at the beginning of this letter, just after we talked about where Paul is saying, what I hear is that there's some quarrels amongst you. Some of you are saying that I follow Paul, some saying I follow Apollos. Right after that, Paul has kind of a sarcastic response, a question, or a couple of questions that he asked the church. Here's what Paul asks. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's a little bit of a sarcastic response to what he sees going on. The unwritten answer, of course, here is Christ is not divided. Paul is not, was not crucified for the people, and nobody, were, nobody was baptized into Paul's name. But then Paul continues with his conversation. He's, he's getting their attention. Was I crucified for you? No, of course not. So then Paul goes into into a, a, another very important moment for the Corinthian church. He begins to speak to them about wisdom and power. About wisdom and power. And it's very interesting. You've got to see what he's doing here. So first he started off by saying, it seems like you're divided and you're quarreling amongst yourselves. And then he begins to talk about wisdom and power. And look at what he says here. He says, Jews, this is in 1 Corinthians 22 to 23. Um, he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Okay, so he's, he's pinpointing there's more division amongst you than what you think. 
It's not just about you guys are saying, well, I love this preacher and I love that preacher. You guys are even coming to Christianity with totally different expectations. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And then he says, neither one of you are going to have your expectations met. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness for Gentiles. If you've come looking for wisdom and power, you're going to be sadly, you're going to, you're going to be at a loss. You're not going to get what you're expecting. Because what's coming to you right now is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness for Gentiles. Uh, Paul goes on to explain. See, he, know, he knows where the, Jewish, where, the, where the church in Corinth is at right now. The church in Corinth is looking at everything around them with worldly eyes. And so he says, with worldly eyes, you can only see worldly things. And to the world, Christ and his death are foolishness. The church you see is broken, and they're seeing things through worldly eyes. From a worldly perspective, the crucifixion of Jesus is foolishness. It is not miraculous, miraculousness. It is not wise. It is a stumbling block in foolishness. But from God's perspective, if you were able to see, Paul is trying to, to speak to the church here, if you were able to see with God's eyes, if you were able to see with spiritual eyes, you would see that the crucifixion of Christ is the fulfillment of God's power and wisdom. It is the highest level of wisdom and power that you could possibly find. But the Corinthian church does not see this. So how is Paul going to help the Corinthian church? Well, Paul begins chapter 2 by sharing his own story. This is a, a wondrous moment in, in Corinthians. It's, a, it's actually a wondrous moment in all of Scripture. You're likely going to know this passage because we've talked about it lots before. So here's how uh, Paul opens up the second chapter. He says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Now this is something the Corinthian church can relate to. The Jews expected miracles and power, but Paul came in weakness. The Greeks expected wisdom and eloquence, but Paul came with trembling I think Paul knows exactly how the, Corinthians, uh, how the Corinthian church feels right at this moment. Wagon circled, fearful, trembling, and foolish. However, where the Corinthians turned to quarreling amongst themselves, division, disorder, and chaos, Paul turned elsewhere. Here's how chapter 2 continues. After he says, I came to you with weakness, with great fear and trembling, Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, just a moment here, because normally we stop there. We read that verse and we're like, oh, great, okay, that's the end of that conversation. We're good to go. In fact, in some of your Bibles, there's a section break right there. 
that passage, that line, then comes another break. And I know in the NIV, they put a little title on the second one. So you just read that top part and you think that's the whole conversation. But Paul didn't follow section breaks. Okay. He kept on talking. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, I'm going to read this first part again for you so you get the flow of it. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. He continues, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So Paul says this, I came with no worldly wisdom. I came with no worldly power. I was fearful and trembling. But instead of speaking from a place of traumatic stress response, instead of depending on man's wisdom and man's power, I turned to God and spoke with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, and I spoke with God's wisdom. See, Paul is not coming with his own power and wisdom. God, uh, Paul is coming with God's power and wisdom. Paul explains that there is a difference between showing up worldly, where you just see worldly things, where you, where you see the, the crucifixion of Christ as foolishness, where you can't see what God is actually doing. There's a difference between that and showing up with spiritual eyes, where you see what God is doing, where you speak with God's wisdom, and you speak with a, dis a display of the Spirit's power. Now, going into chapter 3, Paul draws this back. You, you've got to see these four, first four chapters go back and forth. Chapter 1 is about how the, the Corinthian church has really messed things up. And Paul moves into chapter 2 and he begins to speak about what does it look like to actually see things the way God sees things. And then chapter 3 kind of goes back again and says, okay, you guys have, have messed this up again. And then we go back into chapter 4. Okay, this is how God sees things. So he kind of goes back and forth a little bit in these chapters. But here in the beginning of chapter 3, uh, Paul states the obvious again about the Corinthian church. And he does it kind of like a dad does it. I love the way that Paul has this perspective here. He's kind of like a father. He says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk. It's like, it's, it's like breast milk, okay? He gave, I gave you breast milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? So Paul says to him, you're a bunch of babies. You're a bunch of babies. At this point, I should be able to feed you something a little more solid, but you've still not even been weaned off. You're still a bunch of babies. And Paul longs, though, for the church to grow. He, he views these people as his children. And he wants them to move into maturity, away from this traumatic stress response of circling the wagons and quarreling with fellow believers into mature living, ready for solid food and the deeper things of the Spirit. So what is the answer that Paul gives to the Corinthian church to move into maturity? How does Paul lead this church forward? 
Well, the, the simple answer is just one word. Paul doesn't use the word here, but he describes it. The simple answer is sanctification. Now, sanctification is the action of making or declaring something or someone as holy. Now, I love that definition because it actually speaks of the two sides of sanctification, making and declaring, making and declaring. On the first side, if you are in Christ, you've been declared as sanctified. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, you are already holy. You've been cleansed and set apart by his action. You've been declared holy, sanctified in Christ. This is your new identity in Christ. It is done. Paul takes time to talk about this very fact in the, in the latter part of chapter 2, emphasizing that in Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit who has given you spiritual eyes and understanding. In fact, it's at the end of chapter 2 that we read this passage, which we are likely familiar with. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Already this is true of you. If you're in Christ, you have the mind of Christ right now. Now, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians in the middle of their quarrels, in the middle of their disputes. They've circled the wagons. They're, they're afraid of everything around them. But having the mind of Christ is a right now reality for them. However, they're not making very much use of it right now. In my imagination, it's not really like this, but in my imagination, I, I picture Dr. Frankenstein with a brain in a jar up on a shelf. He has the mind of Christ, but he's just not accessing it right now. I, I think this is the same kind of idea of what's happening for the Corinthian church right now. They've got it. They're just not using it. And Paul says that the Corinthians have the mind of Christ. He also goes on to say later in chapter 3 that they have everything that they need. They already have what they need. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? I mean, this is high and lofty talk to a church that is like a hot mess. The church is a hot mess, but they have the mind of Christ. The church is a hot mess, but they are God's temple and God's Spirit lives in them. Paul is speaking to their identity in Christ, the right now reality that they are sanctified and set apart and holy in Christ. That's the first side of sanctification. You are already, if you're in Christ, you are already holy and set apart, declared to be so by Christ through his death and resurrection. That is your right now identity. The other side of sanctification is that you are being made holy. You're being made holy. So side one is that you are holy. Side two is that you are being made holy. This is what Paul is talking about when he tells the Corinthians that they are still drinking milk like infants, when he would like them to be eating meat as mature adults. He's talking about that other side of sanctification, the growing mature part, the side of the sanctification that is being made holy is what we talk about when we talk about spiritual maturity. In chapter 4, uh, Paul takes the church to task again. He, at the beginning, he again is talking to them and saying, hey, you guys should have been doing something better here. You guys thought you had it all together, but you don't. You thought you were rich, but you're not. You thought you were rulers, but you're not. He begins to speak to them again about their immaturity. And then he comes back to his illustration 
of spiritually immature babies drinking milk. Here's what he says. In 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 14, Paul says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Again, he's taking this father role with them. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everyone in every church. Paul's great response to Corinth's spiritual immaturity is to call them to discipleship, to call them to following him. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Christ. Discipleship, following Paul, learning the life of Christ from him. This is the path to spiritual maturity for the Corinthian church. It's the other side of sanctification. Now, discipleship is not an easy journey. Discipleship challenges us because we, we often hear things that drive us to maturity. You see, when a, when a weightlifter goes to the gym, if you watch them, sometimes they'll lift the little weights, but most of the time they'll go for weights that are almost too big for them to lift. Why? Because when you lift things that are ever-increasing masses, you become stronger. When you just do the little things, you don't usually become stronger. But when you push yourself and challenge yourself and get involved with other people that are different than you, you begin to grow. In discipleship, we're often challenged and stretched with differing viewpoints. When we come together and and we talk to people that see things differently than us, it helps to challenge us to, to rethink what we're holding on to, to maybe sharpen some of the things that we're thinking. Discipleship needs other people. Discipleship needs us to talk to people that don't all agree with us or say the same things that we're saying. Lots of the same voice will not grow you. We need different parts of the body working together to grow. The Corinthian church was circling the wagons, responding to their difficult and, and traumatic times with traumatic stress responses with quarreling and with infighting. And Paul comes along and he says, hey, remember who you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ and then follow me as I follow Jesus. Paul partners identity and discipleship together as the answer for this immature Corinthian church. I wonder today, church, if you find any similarity from the Corinthian story in your own story. We live in incredibly divided times. Everybody here knows it doesn't take long before you you recognize that we live in a very divisive culture right now. All around us are little wagons of people circling around each other who think the same thing as each other, who point their guns outwards and, and shoot anything and everything that sounds at all different than them. And no one is willing to listen to each other anymore. This doesn't just create spiritual immaturity. It creates immaturity just all over the place. When we can't listen to other people's thoughts, when we can't talk about stuff, we just we continue to be immature. But this is devastating to us spiritually. And Paul would say the same thing to us today. Oh, how I wish I could bring meat to you 
but all you can take is milk like a baby. And I don't say this to shame, I don't say this to shame anyone, including myself, but Paul would say to us, remember who you are in Christ. Start off with knowing your identity in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you are sanctified already. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the mind of Christ. You are God's temple, and God's Spirit lives in you. And you are being sanctified. At the same time as you are sanctified now, you are also being sanctified. The call for us is to be disciples, to learn to follow Jesus. So let's dig into learning how to live life in Christ Jesus. It brings with it challenging times. It brings with it challenging times, but our diversity within the body brings opportunities for growth. As you look around at the people around you, there are people in this room that think differently than you. And thank God for that. We need people around us that think differently to grow. There have been moments in my life in these last few years that where I've come with weakness and with fear and with much trembling. And the temptation for me, and maybe it's been a temptation for you too, is to circle the wagons, to put people around me that just whisper nice things into my ear and, and only say the same things that I would say. We just all agree with each other. We sit around in a big hug and it just sounds wonderful. Maybe if you're not into hugging, it doesn't sound that great. But if we are going to move into maturity, we've got to surround ourselves with people that don't always agree with us that don't always say the same things as, as, as we say, that are different. What we need to remember is who we are in Christ, our identity. And we need to get on doing the work of being disciples. Identity and discipleship, hand in hand. So I asked a question at the beginning, how is your mental health? We talked about a common stress behavior, a traumatic stress response. I wonder today, as you're thinking about how life is going for you lately, if you're recognizing some of those spaces where you've maybe circled up the wagons and your circle has become smaller and smaller and smaller, or you're just surrounding yourself with people that are just speaking the same things to you. Recognize that that's a real thing. It's legitimate. It happens. But we're not supposed to just fall into that. So I'm going to pray for you today to have a bit of relief from that. But I encourage you, if you're seeing that in your life, if there's something like that going on, God's calling you to know your identity in Christ. God's calling you to step into discipleship. And we don't do these things alone. And so when we're dismissed, I'm going to encourage you, maybe just grab the person next to you and say, hey, you know what? I, I think maybe I'm, there's some things I'm going through right now. Would you pray for me? Let's be the body to each other and pray for one another. So if, you, if you're recognizing there's something in your life that might just be not supposed to be there, or you're struggling with some mental health or something like that, talk to somebody. We're available for you, of course, but I would encourage you to grab the person next to you and and pray with them, and then maybe talk to somebody. So, let me pray our benediction today. Jesus, we are so thankful that you have done the work to make us holy, set apart. 
And Jesus, I'm also thankful that you invite us to live life with you, to be your disciples, to follow after you so that we are holy and we are being made holy. And today, Lord, right now, I just pray for anyone, including myself. Lord, we've all had these, this mental health weariness over this last little while. I pray for anyone right now today who maybe feels like they're struggling mentally. Their mental health is, is not great. I pray, Lord, that you would come and bring healing right now. And speak your healing, Jesus Christ, over your people. We speak against the circling the wagons, the isolation, the reclusiveness, the, the just being around people that are saying the same things that we are. We speak against that right now, Jesus, in your powerful name, Jesus Christ, and cut that off. Lord, just spirit come. Just spirit come. Invade this space. Bring hopefulness. Bring joy back, Lord. Bring healing to our minds. And so may you be honored and glorified this week, Jesus. And we pray that not just today, but in the days to come, the weeks to come, the months to come, we would continue to walk in you, to see your face, and to be yours. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your wonderful and powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.